Welcome to the Education Matters podcast. I am your host, Yolisa Mdia. On this episode, we are in conversation with two individuals who walk the talk. Yes, that is Yandiswa Tlagaza and Unati Makubeni. Yandiswa Tlagaza is the founder of a primary school called Aero Academy. She currently occupies the position of Chief Executive Officer of Nandi Ibali. Unati Makubeni, on the other hand, retired from corporate South Africa to establish a community library and learning center in his hometown, UCBC. Yes, this is a book-inspired conversation by Unati Makubeni himself, the author of Nwele Zelanga, The Star Child. Before we head into our conversation with Yandi Iswa, let's first hear what Unati Magumeni's project is all about. Rural areas are left behind in terms of development. And much more energy and resources are spent in the urban areas. We need such infrastructure within our communities here in the rural areas, within the villages. Infrastructure providing information, resources to develop ourselves to be better than today, to be better than yesterday. My name is Unati Magubeni. I'm one of the directors of Nomkubulwane Development Project. Nomkubulwane Development Projects is a non-profit company that seeks to develop, empower, and uplift the rural community in which we exist. I'm one of the founding directors of the Nomkubulwane Development Project. I'm from Esoweto currently based in Lusikisiki. I'm a storyteller, I'm an ECT practitioner, I play indigenous instruments, and I write children's books in my mother tongue, which is Isizulu. Novulak Valley Library is the first intervention we have undertaken to focus on two areas of underdevelopment in our community, namely education and uh, skills development. The library seeks to make an intervention starting at early childhood development to nurture the development of children, provide library services to school-going learners, and provide skills development workshops to interested individuals. We've been working with four primary schools and four secondary schools and uh, I've been doing storytelling for children, we've been playing marimbas, and introduction of, uh, especially reading in their mother tongue, uh, because I've been translating stories, as, uh, science stories, but they've been translated into other nine official languages. So we've been reading Nisikosa uh, while I read in Isizulu, and what I love about the stories that I've been translating is those scientists are from villages, you know, so it's stories that children here can relate to. We started the building of the library in 
October of 2019. We employed a crowdfunding approach. We didn't wait for a lump sum of funds to start and finish the building. We went along and, 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 and bought material with the fund that we had raised at that particular time. There was a lockdown in South Africa, so our momentum was disturbed by the coronavirus pandemic. But we had to dust ourselves June, July and get back to, to work. We have received support to finish the rest of the building. And uh, we envision to open officially in January 2022. I've been loving the work. It's been challenging. I feel witty from now. It's a calling, you know, more than anything. That's why yeah, we're able to soldier on. Nomagunzima. Sitting at all the support that we can get, and uh, we've set up a backup body page. Library, let us unite, and but it takes a village to raise a child. The audio of Novula Guvaliwe Library is produced by Isibili Network Production in South Africa. Eight out of 10 grade four learners cannot read for meaning in any language. Their ability to recognize words and to make sense of them is a fundamental building block for reading and learning. When this is missing, learners will struggle in school. Learning backlogs cause disengagement. This is when a young person is disconnected from learning. Over time, disengagement can lead to dropout and school dropout is a big problem in our country. But there's a way to change this path. With early intervention and the right type of support, we can help these learners to improve their reading skills and become confident young people. This is why Reading for Meaning exists as a strategic program within the Zero Dropout campaign. Reading for Meaning is an after-school program based on the internationally recognized TAL methodology, which stands for Teaching at the Right Level, an approach that focuses on a child's learning needs rather than their age or grade. TAL has four phases. The assessment phase. We start by testing a learner's reading level using simple tools. The grouping phase. Learners are grouped into different learning levels. The sessions phase. These fun and engaging sessions are focused on learning needs. And the reassessment phase. At the end of each session, Learners are reassessed to see if they can progress to the next level. The Reading for Meaning program provides a safe, nurturing space to engage with relatable stories and educational activities that encourage critical thinking. And it's made possible by the support of implementing partners, volunteers, schools and parents. Implementing partners work in schools. They recruit and train volunteers who facilitate the sessions, known as reader leaders. Schools provide a safe space for the sessions to take place and provide access to learners. And lastly, parents and caregivers offer learners love and support so that they can practice their reading at home. To find out more about Reading for Meaning or how you can help, visit our website or email us. Education Matters. Book-inspired conversations.
All right, so my name is Yandi Swatwagaza and I am an educationalist and I, I've worked in the education space for a long time and it's, it's a space that I chose to work in because of my understanding of the impact um, that education can truly have in someone's life. And I am a mother of three young children. I have been married for 11 years this year and I'm from a small town um, called Engobo, though I grew up in um, which is where I went to, to school and I was raised by my grandmother. And then on your TED Talk conversation, I saw that you went to a school, Papai, you were rejected somewhere else. How did mm. that sort of make you feel during that time? And what was the... What was the motivation behind you going to a Papai primary school? So um, the story around Ngapai is effectively Ngapai was the, the local school, which was a stone throw away from my grandmother's house. But that's not the school she wanted me to go to for grade one, right? She had identified a school um, close to town and the, the school was an English medium school so children were taught in English from grade one whereas the school that I the one that was close to to, to our home was a is closer um was the was the medium of instruction so to her being taught in English was a lot more progressive and would give me would land me better in my education journey than actually going to um, a school where I, I would be taught as close. So we tried to get into, into the school, but because we were far off from the school, the children that got preference were the children that um, came from feeder schools within the area or children who lived in the area. So I didn't get into that, into that school. I then went to, to Ngapai and I was taught as closer. And, and I mean, when I reflect back, that was possibly the best thing that could have happened um, was for me to actually go to Ngapai and be taught in my mother tongue um, is closer. And today I speak, read, write um, is closer because of that experience, you know, so it, it almost feels like it worked out very well because I would have been this closer um, child identifying as closer, but probably not really able to speak the language well or let alone read it. And yeah, I think my, my experience there set me up for, for, for success because later when I did change schools to go to an English medium school, I actually did exceptionally well, you know? Mm. So the theory that my grandmother held that many um, parents hold that your child, for them to do well at school, they must go to an English medium school from very early on is actually not true. Mm. So I'm also interested in your experience, how, what created a love for education for you? Before I get to that, you said something that's intriguing because I observe it a lot in parents, right? Mm. There is this uh, sense of as long as umdanam epuma elokshin, you know, or as long as my child doesn't study here, in this yeah. village or here in this township, 
and as long as they study in the next best suburb right mm -hmm. um and 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 like you're saying correctly that it may not actually be a good private school you know just because private means it's owned by an individual or a company that's yes. what private is you know that's why you have good public schools as well you know your former yes. model c schools that may well be better than some private schools in this country but the term private doesn't imply quality and and i see that a lot of parents tend to think if it's private it's quality it's not actually you know there's there's quite a number of things you do need to look into um, for you to qualify a school as a good school. What does that actually look like, right? But that's a conversation for another day. To answer your question though, so I knew education, for me, it's a lived experience. And I went on this journey of trying to really find out what is my purpose? You know, what, what, what was I born to solve? Why am I here? What, what problem am I supposed to solve for humanity? Mm -hmm. And and for me, that that process, I mean, it was like a year long journey of self-discovery, asking the right questions, you know, sort of zooming into myself and, and understanding what these things are. And just looking at my own personal lived experience alone was indicative of an experience that I definitely want to change for for younger Yandiswas out there, right? That I should not have to be born in Santon for me to receive high quality education, mm -hmm. right? And there are many children who are born at Kumbu, who are born as Lalin, who are born um, wherever, but by virtue of where they are born and what kind of family they are born into, they 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 don't actually benefit. Um, from high quality education and they are relegated to these substandard schools that are close to them. And, and that's that's unfair because that that already sets you on the wrong path for the rest of your life. It recreates a cycle of poverty. It it just means we we're not progressing as a people, at least not at the scale with which we need to be moving forward. So I, I really was compelled that education if done right, and if done equitably for everyone, will shift not just our consciousness as humanity and lift us up to a better space, but it will shift the dynamics of the country, it will reduce inequality, it will bring back dignity to people's lives, it will make people resourceful, it will do away with so many social ills that we see in this country. It, it's, it feels like a panacea that will solve many of the problems we observe in our country from an economy point of view, political, social, you know, there's just so many things that education alone, single-handedly can solve for us. Yeah, that's true. And then also on that point, I am interested in the why before we get to Nalibali in the why because I see purpose in the why you created a, a school or started a school I'm interested in why you did that <laughs> um, why so I mean my, my why is very closely linked to, to to what I've just said right because mm. I also think that why, why did I create a school or why did I start a school? 
the best way to learn is by doing, right? We, we don't think our way into, into change. We act our way into change. So it was, an, it was put the ideas down and see what actually comes out of it. Um, and, and, and Aero Academy was really about creating high quality education at an affordable price point, right? So access is really a key part of this. And, and my, my, my other big why was also this education um, and knowing that quality education is a working class problem, isn't it? Yes. It's a working class problem. And yet the solutions we are seeing out there, the, the solutions are middle class, mm -hmm. right? Solutions. So we keep seeing these innovations. We keep seeing these great ideas. We keep seeing these heroes. We keep seeing these spark schools. We keep seeing these, but there are still middle class solutions. Mm -hmm. and, who's solving, and, and, and who's solving the working class education problem? Because education, at least quality education, is a working class problem. Mm. Um, and, and, and so for me, it was about, okay, if you want to make education affordable, you're widening the number, the pool of people that can take advantage of quality education. And if we're able to drive down the cost of fees, we will continue to enable others um, across social classes to, to benefit from high quality education. And ideally, we should have a public education system yes. that is of high quality standard, because that's really where we can achieve true scale, is yeah. if our public education system catches up. Um, and uh, the privatization of education is not really going to give us the, the kind of scale we want, right? Mm. Um, it, it, it's plugging in a gap, it's helping um, middle class largely and leaving out the poor to a great extent. And so the only way we can get to the poor and by making sure that our public education system is jacked up um, and, and we, I mean, <laughs> we are far from that, right? Yeah. We are far from that and, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and Usonge, so CV, uh, he mentioned something that hit me so hard that while we take our children to private schooling, while we pay for private health, remember that we are creating a cycle of poverty because we do not necessarily mm. afford those services. We are taking mm. away from enjoy, uh, just the pleasure of living and working because constantly every month you have this huge expense that takes away from your household and it's just mm. for a social service that is privatized. And it hit me there when I know actually, like the extent of what it is that we do is kind of like we need to do more, especially on the government side. Yes. Yeah. We do. You, we do. You're reminding me, I mean, your comment is reminding me of my experience um, when we went to Finland. Uh, I think 2016, towards the end of 2016. And that's one of the key things we observed, right? That their government is functional and that's what works, right? So people are, are, are taxed highly, 
probably, I mean, we are a highly taxed country as well as South Africa. So equivalent to or very similar, right? But people were okay with being taxed that much in Finland because the, the, the security, the, the, the police work, right? The, the nation is well protected, so you don't need to pay for private security. They are, they are schools from preschool. They are public schools. There are no private schools in Finland. If they are there, they are in minority because their public education system works so well. So parents don't mind being taxed because then I can take my child to a public preschool that offers high quality education competing with the best in the world um you know so so all of these things yes we are taxed highly but we don't have to pay additionally which is what is happening in south africa because you are paying tax and yet you still need to pay for private health care right mm. because our public health care is not of great standard so we are being double taxed because everything we're getting taxed for we still pay for it privately True. which is unfortunate yeah it is unfortunate and then also because we're having this conversation now i think let's bring in alibali because Nalibali is sort of an innovative initiative program mm. that said this is my memory of nalibali and this is how i've used <laughs> nalibali so on sunday dada buys a newspaper he comes back home while he reads his newspaper my sister and i are compiling our nalibali books that we have to cut, there's a number one, two, three, mm -hmm. it tells mm -hmm. a story. And this is an affordable resource and probably one of the first books that I have read in my life because parents did not necessarily buy books. And this is a reality in South Africa, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I want to touch into how Unalibali has been performing because it is a long-standing organization and what mm. the future holds for Nalibali. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Such a lovely uh, story of your experience with, with Nalibali. So, yeah, I think one of the, the, the greatest things about Nalibali is the ability to get reading material out at scale, right? So we leverage existing infrastructure and ecosystems to get these materials out. In, in the case you just shared where your father buys the newspaper, that was a relationship we had with Diesel Black Stars. And, and we used their newspaper outlets to insert our um, you know, uh, supplements. That's what we call them, learning supplements, but really the stories that are in a newspaper format, insert them there and get that wide scale distribution. So it's, it's really a smart uh, thing to think about because we also leveraged the printing resources of these newspaper companies to make it cheap for us to print and then make it cheaper for us to distribute, right? So our biggest costs are in the creation and the thinking around what should be on the inside the supplement itself, what is engaging, what is fun, what do children love to do? So that's the work that we would then think of in the back end. Um, so it's, it's really an innovation because we do have a, a problem of content deficit or book deficit in our communities, in our schools, right? And it, this one, I, it just simply breaks, breaks my heart because what kind of school does not have enough books, right? I mean, schools are supposed to be repositories of, of knowledge and of text 
and schools are supposed to be text rich, right? But they yes. are not. Our schools are not. And, and, and for a school not to be text rich brings in the question of why are you even a school? What makes you a school then, right? Um, if you are not that repository of knowledge. So we then take these uh, supplements and we distribute them to schools, to NGOs that work with children, to the South African post office, because that's where some parents go for their SASA payments every month. So it's right there in your face. You can actually just pick it up and take it home. It's free. Um, and it's, 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 a. Um, it's not a solution in itself, right? It's a means to an end. And really the end is that our government prints enough books for our public schools, for our preschools, for our homes, for our communities. They find ways to inundate our communities with books um, because they have a bigger pocket than any NGO in this country. So if we, uh, so this is an interim solution. It remains an interim solution because we know that we are not reaching as many children, as many homes, as many schools than we get requests for because we too have limited resources. But we are doing our best with the resources we have been given to make sure that we reach every corner of this country. Um, one of the great relationships we have built over the years is with the South African Post Office which has been gracious enough to say, we will help you distribute this material as far as wide as you need us to for free. Um, I mean, we are looking at relationships with ShopRite, Boxer, as long as we can use these this existing infrastructure to further distribute reading material so that we are in each corner in our country. We want children to read, we want children to make sure that they, they too have stories that they can get lost in and disappear from the struggles of their daily lives by getting lost in a book. We want to create those fairy tales for our children, but more importantly, we want them to be able to read and to love reading, um, right? And that's how we're going to start changing the culture of reading in this country, not by saying it should change, by making sure that we create the resources, plant them in communities, and let the children and the community decide what to do with that material. Printing is a huge cost driver. Even getting textbooks mm. in schools is a printing issue more than it is a content issue. And then mm. also you, as Nalibali, there are many evaluation studies that you guys have conducted. Any mm. from your evaluation studies that you remember, but it cuts every time you think about it. Wow, I mean, that's such a profound question, right? Because I think every time I read an evaluation and an evaluation is often, it's the voices of the people we're helping, right? Whether yeah. it is an ECD practitioner, it is a parent, it is a teacher, it is a child to themselves. It is a reading club owner or someone who runs a reading club. It's the opinions, the raw opinion of the people we seek to help. And um, so one, one that, that comes up for me is a young person, an unemployed youth, right? Who is running a reading club because they can't find a job and they are at home and they're thinking, what can I do for this community? 
and they begin a reading club and and they learn then that you know actually these children not only can they not read right and they're in grade four grade six um they are old not only can they not read none of them has ever owned a book mm. none of them has ever owned but this is my book they don't know what that is to own a book that's heartbreaking mm. because for any child to really develop a culture of reading and and love or a love of reading they need to have, well, at least research, scientific research tells us that they need to at least have 20 books, mm. age appropriate, 20 books in their home for them to develop a love of reading. So if you have never owned a book, one book, and you're in grade six, do you see how bleak yes. that picture is, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, it made me realize we need to raise more funds to continue doing the work that we do and and be able to provide book ownership to children in this country. A lot of them don't yeah. know what it means to own a book. Yeah, I actually have an experience of a reading club member from Malibali in Islam. Oh, really? Yes, I attended a training. Uh, it was an Alibali training and it was incidental because I was in uh, the health sector working with young yeah. girls. And then I was at the library one day and I got invited to this training session. So I attended, but one of the participants was a young lady from, I don't know, in the outskirts of East London, not even in the townships, but some, yeah. some village. And she started her own reading club as well. Funny that you touch yeah. on that experience because that's my other memory of Inalibani. Yeah. So if you were the Minister of Education, <laughs> <laughs> what would you prioritize? Yeah. So my, my fear with this question, right, is, mm. is that you're going to have to hold me accountable one day when I am, in fact. Yes. Right? <laughs> so then this podcast comes up and it's like, well, this is what she said. So let's see if she does it. So I have to think carefully about um, answering that question. I think, I mean, one, one certain thing I would uh, prioritize as minister would be private partnerships. I think we are sitting on latent resources, skill set, expertise from private sector or private individuals, you know, that have brilliant ideas on how education needs to shift. So for me, it's an understanding of we are not, government is not utilizing this, this talent in this country and across sector right so disruptions do not often come from the industry right it's not mm. a teacher or an, an educationalist necessarily that is going to disrupt education it's someone who's outside of the industry and that could be tech that could be engineers that could be the marketplace because ultimately education is about creating a pipeline of skills that will service the economy right so the market knows the kind of skills we need. So we have to then 
engage private sector intentionally, right? And actually also with honesty of, we do not know where this, where this thing is going. We do not know how to rethink education, help us, right? And you'll be surprised what kind of ideas come through from the market, from the, from the uh, private sector. And, and let's take some of the best thinking that exists and let's weave it into creating an education, uh, public education that is competitive, that is respected, and that can actually compete globally um, in, in the economy. So I would, I, would, I would really prioritize that. I think there's a lot of nuggets and a lot of wisdom that sits there. Um, I will also probably focus on teacher training and also redefining, you know, what, what is a teacher actually? Because if we look at um, the kind of skill set we need to be teaching children in this day and age, one might even argue that it's not the traditional bachelor of education degree as we know it is irrelevant in the in, in the 21st century that in fact we need someone who studied maths in university a mathematician to come and teach maths you know what does that look like what kind of pedagogy or teaching um frameworks or methodologies can we then teach you know to a mathematician so that they are able to relay their knowledge to a group of primary school children a group of high school rethink teacher education the tenets of teacher uh, of, of teacher training what does a teacher actually what should a teacher look like given what we know now right so i would definitely disrupt that space um and 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 the third one maybe then would be i would love for our curriculum to be informed by what is happening in the world today so i would really push for an agile curriculum one that can be easily adapt and adaptive you know so we can't say that we have chosen caps right 15 years ago we decided we want caps and then five years in, there's a radical change in the skill set required by the world. And we're sticking to caps because, well, that's what we chose. No, we should have curriculum developers ready to adapt and change. This is where the world is going. These are the skills that are required. Less of this, more of that. Dial this up, dial this down. Agile curriculum. We can't be stuck in a curriculum that is no longer serving us. If we are saying that, learning how to write in cursive is important. Let's question why. Why do we think that's important in the 21st century? Is cursive, right? I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying, let us question, is it really what we need to develop fine motor skills? No, maybe there are other things children can do to develop fine motor skills. It shouldn't be linked to cursive writing when we are typing our assignments in high school. Right. So it's all about let's not be stuck to mm. our solutions. Let's be informed by the problem of the day and adjust the solution to the problem we are faced with in this age and day. So those are the three key things I would definitely go with.
we are going to explore ways in which you can help your child to be able to read with understanding. Sometimes children can read words even though they do not understand the meaning of the words. Reading with understanding means that they can read the words, understand the meaning and be able to make use of the word in a sentence. Encouraging a child to read not only helps them to perform well at school, but it also helps to boost their confidence. Although it is a great idea to make story time a daily activity at home in a comfortable space, there are many opportunities for your child to practice reading skills. It can happen anywhere and anytime. We will share some ideas on how to spot or create opportunities for your child to be able to read. Tip number one, read them a story before bedtime. Spending 15 minutes reading to your child can help to create a culture of reading in the home. You can get stories from our WhatsApp or you can join a local library. Tip number two, when you're waiting for a bus, a taxi or a train, reading while waiting can be a fun way of passing time while learning. Try to always have a book with you so that you can read anywhere, anytime. Tip number three, make a list of activities or things. Encourage your child to make a shopping list and read it back to you. This is a good opportunity for them to practice reading. You can also ask them to write a list of names of people that they know and read that list back to you. This will help them to get used to reading. Tip number four, ask them to read words that they see on the street. Doing this with your child can help to encourage them to read. You can make this fun by asking them to spell the words and you can make it a competition. Ask them what the words mean in their language and if you can, ask them to use them in a sentence. Tip number five, spelling bee at home. You can encourage your child to read more by having a spelling bee at home. You can take it further by asking the child to use the words in a sentence. They can write down the sentences and read them back to you. Encourage your child to keep practicing reading. And until next time, happy reading.